It's Friday, November 8th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. Thanks in part to big tech companies, San Francisco is now home to more dogs and children. The city's demographic is skewing younger and richer, and people are staying single for longer, having fewer children, and getting more dogs. Dogs are welcome most everywhere, and many companies have dog-friendly workplace policies. Jason Sheeler, contributing writer to Airmail.News, joins us for how San Francisco is living the dog life. Next, Virgin Hyperloop One is looking to become the next major mode of transportation and is looking for a place to construct a six-mile certification track that would be tested for commercial use. Still hurting from losing out on the transcontinental railroad in the 1880s, Missouri is throwing its hat in the ring early in hopes of winning the contract. Shane D. Race, reporter for the Wall Street Journal, joins us for more. Finally, the U.S. is officially leaving the Paris Agreement, an effort by 200 countries to lower carbon emissions and keep the global climate from rising 1.5 degrees Celsius. The withdrawal will take one year and will be official one day after Election Day 2020, setting it up to be a huge campaign issue. Sarah Kylie Watson, editorial assistant in popular science, joins us for what comes next. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. It's a delightfully normal office, except that, you know, there we are you know, in the break room and there's the snacks and the cereals and the, the kombuchas and all of those things that people have in their in their canteens. And then there's like a bowl for dogs and then dog treats and little, you know, Google branded dog treats. And then there's the poop bag. Joining us now is Jason Sheeler, contributing writer to Airmail.News. Thanks for joining us, Jason. Hi, thank you so much. We're going to be talking about dogs. I love a good dog story. And right now, thanks to the tech crowd, to all these people like Google and whatnot that operate in the city of San Francisco, San Francisco is now home to more dogs than children. Some of the latest numbers that I just pulled up from the American Community Survey, this is from 2016. I don't know if we have any more current numbers, but in 2016, there was 115,000 kids under 18 in the city. But the San Francisco Animal Care said that there was 120 to 150,000 dogs. So dogs are winning in this category. But because of these big tech companies, dog-friendly policies, they allow their employees to bring their dogs. Dogs are just everywhere all over the city. Jason, tell us a little bit about this and the story that you worked on. Believe me, if you live in San Francisco, you'll think that there's about 100 million dogs versus those numbers because it really is everywhere. And it's it's a few things that came across in my reporting for airmail. It's that the cost of housing in San Francisco is just skyrocketing, right? And then at the same time, the average age of people in San Francisco is also declining. And so you've got these interesting crisscrossing statistics, which is leading to people are staying single longer because of housing and people are having children much later. So you have this incredibly highly intelligent populace of people seeking companionship. So that's where dogs come in. And it's a really sweet story. And something that was really important to me in reporting this story, I live in San Francisco and I was kind of sick of reading one story after another about how the tech industry is like destroying the fabric of San Francisco. And this is actually something that I can see from my reporting that the tech community is actually making the lives of dogs better. You know, I live in Los Angeles. It's similar where you see a ton of dogs. You see a lot of people with dogs. And my wife works in a dog-friendly environment. She's able to take our dog to work with her every day. And Everybody there, just anecdotally, obviously, everybody there loves having the dog in the office. They get to play. Even from your reporting, you said it makes people feel better at work. They work longer hours just because they get to take that little break with a loving little dog there. So in that sense, it's a big plus for some of these companies to have good dog-friendly policies. 
I hung out at the park with some Googlers and their Googlers, which is the in-house nomenclature for dogs at Google. Then I went to work with them. And, and most of these people that I spoke to, in fact, almost all of them said that at this point, now that they work in it for a company which allows them to bring a dog to work, that's forever changed. They can never go back to a tech company or to any company that doesn't allow dogs to work. So this is also a game changer. People are wanting to get the best possible employee, right? And so the companies are also canny. They're not entirely, you know, philanthropic with this. They also are canny in terms of they want to get the best hires. You spend a lot of time at Google. They're credited with having one of the first and most liberal dog policies and they extend it to all their offices around the world. So if you work for Google, you get to benefit from all this stuff. Tell us what it's like in the office there with all the dogs around. You think you're going to kind of enter the future, right? Because you're going to like the center of tech and it's, yeah. it's a delightfully normal office, except that there we are you know, in the break room and there's the snacks and the cereals and the kombuchas and all of those things <laughs> that people have in their canteens. And then there's like a bowl for dogs and then dog treats and little, you know, Google branded dog treats. And then there's the poop bags. And so you, <laughs> it's a very normal thing. And then I just kind of also kind of wandered around. I took the long way to the elevator so I could nose around a little bit. And you see conference rooms with like people sitting around a table looking at screens and all that stuff. And then there at their feet are, you know, three or four dogs. And what came across as like really delightfully earnest, you know, completely genuine is the passion these people have for not only dogs, but in particular rescue dogs. And so one conversation I, I got to witness was, you know, this guy was walking around trying to get these two dogs, these older dachshunds named Romy and Michelle, which is really funny. And he really was trying to help them get adopted. And so I think that these aren't just accessories. You know, I've lived in San Francisco. I've lived in Dallas. I've lived in a lot of cities. There are certainly people like their dogs, but unlike any other city I've ever lived in, San Francisco, rescue dogs in particular um, have it really good here. And in fact, there's a shortage of them, according to the SPCA. I love the way you noted how when accidents happen, I guess there was a case that happened that a dog threw up on the floor and then within seconds, a maintenance person rolled up with a cart, handed them some some, uh, paper towels and, you know, everything gets cleaned up right away. I have to say that actually was kind of spooky. I mean, like I'm saying, like, you know, it's a tech company. So I don't know how they saw, like, I was like looking around for cameras. I don't know what, but it was within seconds. So that was actually pretty, pretty amazing. (laughs) That's funny. Talk a little bit more broadly, though, about how the city has changed overall, because we hear crazy stories about these dog walking services and how much those cost and even all these doggy spas and the co-working spaces. The city really has taken to it. And there's so many things that you can do with your pets and for your pets. You're in Los Angeles, and there's certainly a lot of dogs in L.A., but unlike L.A., and San Francisco is a small city, you know, it's like seven by seven miles, and it's an incredibly outdoorsy city, and it's also a city where a lot of people are on their feet, so there's a lot of walk-in, so dogs really are completely integrated into the warp and weft of, of San Francisco, and so once the cost of living here got a lot more expensive and the wealth here got more expensive, right? And so I think this completely culture collision of wealth and dog love and environmental factors where like it's a little chilly here and that's always conducive to dog parks. And so from that, you have incredible dog boutiques. You know, there's one called Mishka, which was opened recently and has duck pate little tarts for dogs, which are about, you know, $17 each, which are incredibly expensive. Then you have the kind of predictable imitation Chanel jackets for dogs. But even in addition to that you have dog masseurs you have dog acupuncturists i took my dog to the vet here i go to the spca animal hospital for my dog i had a 14 year old pit bull mix who actually passed away during my reporting of this story unfortunately and um and it was suggested to me that you know she's having trouble with her back legs and so why don't i try out like a dog acupuncturist 
which I kind of like almost fell out of my chair because I'd never heard of such a thing. Right. And also they're like, well, there's also a swimming pool therapy for dogs, you know? And so, I mean, all these things are just incredibly, incredibly yeah. expensive. But something that I learned from a dog walker when I went to walk with him is that the excellence that his clients have achieved in life, which are mainly like, you know, tech people that he walks, they want the same level of excellence for their pets. And, you know, that makes sense. Jason Sheeler, contributing writer to airmail.news. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Imagine traveling non-stop at up to 670 miles per hour, above land or underground. Hyperloop is the first new form of public transportation in over 100 years. Fundamentally, it will change the way we travel, work, and live. Joining us now is Shane D. Race, reporter for The Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. No problem. My pleasure. The Los Angeles-based Virgin Hyperloop One has sent out requests for proposals asking states to bid for a chance to host a six-mile certification track that they want to test out. This would be a test for commercial use of the Hyperloop, which is that project that Elon Musk had dreamed up about, basically moving people around in frictionless tubes. They said that they can get this thing to travel about 700 miles an hour. But one state in particular is throwing their hat in the ring, and they're going to fight hard for this. It's Missouri. Tell us a little bit about this, Shandy. The hope is that at some point it could go as fast as 700 miles an hour. So really, unlike anything out there right now. And the idea is that it would be this really revolutionary technology. And a lot of states are very interested in being the home to this certification track. And like you said, this would be the first time that Hyperloop would potentially be certified for commercial use. So a really big step. And the other key part is that if the certification track is successful, that track could ultimately be used as the foundation for a longer track that would be sort of like the first real city to city connection of Hyperloop and ultimately potentially like the central node of a national Hyperloop system. So obviously that's something that's appealing to a lot of states. But Missouri seems to be really eager to get this going, which is surprising. It's a pretty conservative state and, you know, alternative transportation methods are not necessarily what people think about when they think of Missouri. But the state feels that this would really help them be on the map for the next advanced technological transportation that comes out and and they want to be a part of it. There's about 22 states that have expressed interest in bidding for this project, but the CEO of Virgin Hyperloop One said, this is not going to really be built in a major urban area like New York or Los Angeles. There's just too much red tape to go around and land use issues. So they need a place that has big, large, flat, sparsely developed tracts of land where they can do this. That's where Missouri wants to come in. And one of the notes from your article, they're saying a lot of people in Missouri are still hurting from the 1880s when they missed out on the Transcontinental (laughs) Railroad. And they don't want to be passed up. As you said, this could be the next big technological transportation mode if things go successful. And they're still smarting from that. And they don't want to lose this opportunity. That's what they say. I mean, it's really funny when you have people citing things from, you know, over 100 years ago, but it does seem to be on their mind and they definitely want to be a part of it. I think the point that you make is a good one. When I spoke to the CEO, he was really adamant that the chances that this gets done in a really big coastal urban area are probably low. That doesn't mean you couldn't see like a St. Louis to Chicago connection. But if you're going to be having to dig tunnels through Los Angeles or through New York, that's going to present lots of land rights 
issues, not to mention it's going to be very expensive. So that is not necessarily the ideal place to start. So Missouri is kind of pitching that as one of their benefits. It's not going to be done in the middle of nowhere. I mean, you need to connect two major cities. So Missouri feels like it's a good option because you've got two decently sized cities in St. Louis and Kansas, and yet you could kind of work right along the Interstate Highway 70, which the government owns already, and so you wouldn't be dealing with a lot of land issues there. So they feel that they've got a lot of positives in their column, but of course, there are other states that are going to be trying for this. So they're going to have competition, but they've definitely been way ahead at this point in terms of sort of raising their hands and saying, come here, come here. (laughs) Talk to us a little bit about the price tag for some of this. And you mentioned connecting Kansas City and St. Louis, possibly, you know, if things go well. How much would all this cost and what kind of travel time are we looking at if something like this could come to fruition? The state put out a report and they're sort of, again, like in line with them being the first, they're the first state to actually put a number on any of this. And they estimate that it would cost them about between 300 and 500 million to build this test track, this six to 15 mile certification track. To then build the longer connection between Kansas City and St. Louis would cost a little over 10 billion. And they're saying that this is relatively affordable compared to other transportation options out there. I don't know how much high-speed rail would cost, but you have to think like other options like that. But it would take significantly less time, so it would be about 30 minutes. I live in California where you mentioned high-speed rail right now. They're trying to get a high-speed rail thing going, but it's not even connecting big major cities, somewhere that people would want to go for leisure or even business. So it's a tough thing to get accomplished there. And there's tons of cost overruns and and the whole land use thing. It has become kind of a mess in the state. So these things are very intricate details that need to be worked out. But Missouri thinks it could bring $3.5 billion in economic revenues, 17,000 new jobs. These are reasons why these states are bidding for this type of thing. The California example is kind of like the poster child for why not to do something like this. Everybody sort of points to that example as like the boondoggle that you just don't want to get into. It becomes a huge suck of money and you don't end up achieving what you'd hope to achieve. And so states have taken lots of different routes. I mean, I'm based in Chicago here in Illinois. The state invested a whole bunch of money in making higher speed rail. And so I think the thing that Missouri is looking at and the reason why it's not just about moving people more quickly is that they feel that their biggest cities are being left behind economically. And, you know, when you think about the fastest growing cities in this country, St. Louis and Kansas City are really not up there. This is a very slow growing state. Their labor force is actually contracting, not growing. So they've got an issue with attracting talent to the state and companies want to be where the talent is. And if you're a state where your labor force is contracting, you're not going to attract a whole lot of business. And so they're sort of thinking this is a way to beef up their image, make them, you know, a little bit sexier, a little bit more techie, and people will see this super cool technology and they'll think, all right, well, I just got my engineering degree from Stanford. I'd like to go work on the Hyperloop and live in Kansas City. Shane D. Race, reporter for The Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. I announce the withdrawal of the United States from the horrible, costly, one-sided Paris Climate Accord. Joining us now is Sarah Kylie Watson, editorial assistant at Popular Science. Thanks for joining us, Sarah. Thank you so much for having me. The U.S. is officially leaving the Paris Climate Accord. Earlier this week, the United States began the formal process of that. We had to send a letter to the U.N. saying that we want to get out. But the whole process is actually going to take a year. 
and wouldn't be completed until November 4th, 2020, one day after the election. So this sets up another critical issue for the 2020 election. Sarah, tell us a little bit about the U.S. leaving this. So we've actually known for a while that the U.S. was going to leave this back in 2017. Donald Trump announced that we would no longer be meeting our commitments for the Paris Accord. So this is kind of just on track with what we were expecting. And so this week, he announced the formal withdrawal process, which, again, will put us the day after the 2020 election officially out of the Paris Accord. Since the president announced back in 2017 that we would be leaving, has the U.S. been keeping up those commitments in the meantime? Not at a federal level. Right after that announcement, there was a group of cities and communities, states, universities, and so on that did say, hey, we're going to keep trying to work towards these goals. But as a country, no, we haven't been keeping up with it. Remind us again also what was in the Paris Accord. There was over 200 countries that joined in this agreement to lower carbon emissions. What kind of standards, what kind of goals were these countries setting? So the overall goal is to keep the global temperature two degrees Celsius or less above pre-industrial levels. So basically keeping the globe at a livable standard. It's a non-binding agreement. So for the United States, for example, they had a goal of lowering carbon emissions by 26% below 2005 levels by 2025. And on top of goals to lower carbon emissions, there are also goals in there to assist poor nations with the impacts of climate change whenever they might come upon them. So what's the big worry if the United States gets out of this? I know Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, who kind of made the announcement, said that the U.S. is still going to maintain a voice in international discussions on global warming, even though it seems like the president really wants nothing to do with this. What's going to happen? What are other countries saying about this? Because everybody else is going to have to step up on this, most notably, I think, China and India, because they're some of the largest polluters they're going to have to step up their efforts. I think that's just it. So the U.S. is such a big emitter that it really is just that everyone else kind of has to step up and take up that slack that the U.S. is leaving behind. So the U.S. leaving just makes it harder work for the rest of the world. One of the other big reasons that the president was saying he wanted to get out of this because this puts us in a kind of at a financial disadvantage. It favors other countries. What has been the reaction to that? Economically, moving towards a greener economy is good for countries. So other places are going to kind of be moving ahead of us in the world of renewable energy and sustainable enterprise, whereas the United States is going to be stuck behind. And it seems like the rest of the world is aware that they're not backing down just because the U.S. is backing down. So the U.S. is missing an opportunity a little bit there. And there's been a lot of surveys done on this subject. A lot of people don't necessarily agree with the president for getting out of this. I think one of the last big ones that we saw was a Yale survey. There were 69% of American voters, including 51% of Republicans, were disapproving of the decision to pull out of the Paris Agreement. And like I said, I mean, it just sets up another big election issue. If the president gets reelected, we'll for sure be out. If a new president gets elected, a Democratic one, everybody on the Democratic side has signaled that they would be getting back in. So just something to keep an eye out for. Sarah Kylie Watson, Editorial Assistant at Popular Science. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. That's it for this week. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. I want to give a special thanks to all of the listeners who have got us into the top 100 podcasts of iHeartRadio 11 weeks in a row. We hit top 20 this past week. 
please share and tell a friend to follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Dive was produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.